millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Glenn Davis was not your typical multimillionaire. He rode the Toronto subway, spent months hiking and paddling through the wilderness, and was rarely seen without his trademark Tilly hat. He donated millions to wilderness and environmental causes with no strings attached. He was a private man who shunned the spotlight and never sought fame or recognition for his generosity. So when Glenn Davis was viciously attacked by a baseball-wielding assailant in the parking lot of his office one night in 2005, he put it down to a random assault. But the police weren't so sure. Had the mild-mannered businessman and philanthropist made any enemies during his career? Who would want to hurt him? Or had their intentions been even more sinister. Glenn Davis would survive the brutal attack. But who was behind it? And more importantly, would they try again? I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true story of a man adopted as a baby into one of Canada's wealthiest families. He grew up surrounded by wealth, but then spent most of his life giving it away to others. His passion was the natural earth, the land and its wild creatures, and he donated millions to save it. But this conservationist and philanthropist had an enemy, someone close who wanted a share of the family fortune for himself and he was willing to do anything to get it, even if it meant murder. This is Enemy Within, the murder of Glenn Davis. Shock and sadness over his murder. The murder was a great shock. Glenn White Davis was adopted as a baby by Toronto business tycoon Nelson Morgan Davis and his wife Eloise in 1941. The couple also adopted a baby girl named Elaine 
Morgan Davis. Nelson Davis was a self-made millionaire, originally from Cleveland, who had moved to Toronto in 1929. He made his fortune buying undervalued companies during the Depression, and by 1951, he was living in the 29-room Graydon Hall Manor, one of the city's largest estates, with a 10-car garage, a nine-hole golf course, indoor swimming pool, and horse stables. The children were tended to by a legion of servants and rode in a Rolls Royce to school. They spent winters in Arizona and summers on a family-owned island in Muskoka. Nelson Davis had also brought his brother Marshall to Toronto from Ohio to work for him, and together they continued to acquire more companies and more wealth. Marshall Davis and his wife Ruth had two daughters, Marcia and Mary. Growing up, the girls would often spend time with their cousins, Glenn and Elaine, at Graydon Hall Manor. Then, in 1964, Nelson Davis sold the 96-acre Graydon Hall estate and moved his family into a mansion overlooking the Rosedale Golf Course. In the early 1960s, Glenn attended the University of Western in London, Ontario, where he studied political science. He was also a promising member of the school's swim team. A shy, unassuming young man, he was well-liked, and he never spoke of his family's wealth. While at university, Glenn met Mary Alice Setterington. Mary was the first woman Glenn Davis ever invited home to his parents' Toronto mansion. And after graduating with a master's degree in political science, Glenn and Mary Alice were married in a small civil ceremony. In 1965, the couple moved to Winnipeg, where Glenn taught political economics at the University of Manitoba and coached hockey. A few years later, they returned to Toronto, and Glenn went to work for his father, Nelson Davis, who owned N.M. Davis Corp., a conglomerate of more than 50 transportation and manufacturing companies. Mary Alice looked after their home and volunteered at the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. The two brothers, Nelson and Marshall, were close and had amassed a sizable fortune by the late 1960s. But what they valued most was family and privacy. Then, something happened that threatened both. In 1969, Glenn's first cousin, Mary Davis Nellis, was kidnapped. After a $200,000 ransom was paid, Mary was released unharmed after three terrifying days. But the frightening ordeal shook the whole family. Nelson and Marshall Davis were notoriously private and had kept their professional and personal lives out of the spotlight. So when it was discovered that Mary had been betrayed by someone close, her former fiancé, 
the family was devastated. Their millions had provided them a luxurious lifestyle, but it had also brought greed and violence to their doorstep. After the kidnapping, the Davis clan became even more reclusive. They remained a close-knit family, wary of strangers and the press. But in 1979, tragedy struck again when the family's patriarch, Nelson Davis, suffered a heart attack and drowned in his pool in Arizona. He was 72. After his father's death, Glenn inherited the family business, N.M. Davis Corp., estimated to be worth $100 million. And like his father, Glenn avoided the media and hated having his picture taken. Glenn Davis was painfully shy, and wealth did not dictate who he was. He preferred practical clothing and Tilly hats to Harry Rosen suits. He drove a GMC SUV and sported a Timex watch, not a Rolex. His favorite restaurant was Swiss Chalet that he referred to as The Club. And he could often be found at a Toronto Maple Leafs hockey game enjoying a hot dog or two. And with no children of their own, Glenn and his wife Mary Alice spent time with the Davises' extended family, including first cousin Mary Nellis, her husband Cliff, and their two children. And they would often spend holidays with Mary's older sister, Marcia. Marcia and her husband, Murray Ross, had two children, including a son named Marshall, named after his grandfather. Glenn and Mary Alice were the boy's godparents and doted on him. Glenn would often take Marshall on camping and hiking trips. Glenn always preferred being outdoors, exploring the wilderness. Glenn was a strong businessman, like his father, and the company continued to flourish under his direction. But then four years after his father's untimely death and taking over the family's multi-million dollar conglomerate, something happened to Glenn Davis that would change the trajectory of his entire life. On June 2nd, 1983, a fire broke out in the bathroom of Air Canada Flight 797, leaving from Dallas on its way to Toronto. The plane was forced to make an emergency landing at the Cincinnati airport and exploded on the runway. Glenn Davis was one of 18 people who survived the crash, while 23 other passengers died including Canadian folk music legend Stan Rogers. The crash changed aviation rules, forcing the introduction of track lighting on the cabin floor and smoke detectors in the washrooms. The near-death experience also changed Glenn Davis. Not long after the plane crash, he went from managing the vast fortune left to him by his father 
to donating a great deal of it to charity. Glenn became the country's most generous wilderness philanthropist, giving generously to the World Wildlife Fund and the Sierra Club. He began spending more time exploring the outdoors than sitting in his office, and his godson, Marshall Ross, was one of his favorite companions on numerous wilderness treks, like camping in the Grand Canyon or skiing the Rocky Mountains. In 2003, Marshall married a woman named Eva Wauer, and the following year in 2004, Glenn Davis gave his godson Marshall a $2.5 million loan to start a development and renovation business. The loan came with a payback schedule, including interest, and a rent-free office at N.M. Davis Corp.'s head office near Bayview and York Mills Road in Toronto. Glenn was very generous, but he believed in financial accountability and good management. If you take a loan, you pay it back. He didn't interfere with Marshall Ross's company and assumed the loan would be repaid in good faith. And while Glenn was happy to help his godson, other members of the Davis family were not necessarily impressed with Glenn's philanthropy. The other side of the Davis family, Marshall Davis, his daughters Mary and Marcia, and their children, had all been cut out of the company when Nelson Davis died, and Glenn had inherited everything. There was even an unspoken resentment over the fact that Glenn Davis was adopted, yet he had inherited the family fortune. And now, he was giving it away to conservation and wildlife charities. But Glenn was not a man to get embroiled in family drama and continued pursuing his passions and his philanthropy. He was happiest trekking through the wilderness or studying the natural habitats of native mammals. But then, tragedy struck again. On December 21st, 2005, Glenn was attacked in the parking lot of his office. He was violently beaten by a stranger wielding a baseball bat. Fortunately, an employee in the office heard the commotion and ran outside to intervene. The attacker took off as Glenn lay bleeding on the pavement. The attack shattered Glenn's left arm, and he had to have a metal plate inserted into his elbow. He also received numerous stitches and staples from the blows that had been inflicted. The police investigated the attack, but no leads or suspects emerged. Was it a random attack? A robbery? Glenn himself thought so and did not fear for his safety. And while friends suggested that he needed to take the attack seriously, he refused to hire security. A wrong decision in hindsight. On the afternoon of May 18th, 2007, 
17 months after the baseball bat attack. Glenn drove to the head office of the World Wildlife Federation at Eglinton Avenue East and Mount Pleasant Road in Toronto. He was meeting a director of the charity for lunch to discuss the work of the organization and his continued support of their endeavors. After lunch, around 1.45 p.m., Glenn walked into the underground parking garage where he had parked his SUV. Just as he reached his vehicle, a man in a hood appeared from behind the parked car. He shot Glenn in the chest at close range. Glenn fell to his knees. Please don't kill me, he said to the stranger. The man fired again. Glenn Davis was dead. Shock and sadness over his murder. The murder is a great mystery. In this underground parking Glenn garage. Davis fell to his knees begging the gunmen, please don't kill me. News of Glenn Davis's shocking murder made front page headlines. Davis, a multi-millionaire philanthropist, had been gunned down in broad daylight in a busy area of the city. It was a brazen attack carried out with precision. Upon entering the underground parking lot, he was confronted by a lone male uh, suspect. Um, There was a confrontation, a firearm was produced, and uh, Mr. Davis was uh, cowardly shot. Those who knew Glenn personally and professionally were devastated. Five days after the murder, the Toronto police released images of two male suspects caught on camera in the underground parking garage. Both men were white and in their mid-twenties. The police also reported that they had found several matinee brand cigarette butts in the garage, close to where Glenn Davis had been slain. The police said they weren't ruling out robbery as a possible motive, since Glenn Davis's wallet was missing when they discovered his body. An investigator said they were not sure if the attack on Glenn two years earlier was connected to his murder. For the next 18 months, a small team of homicide investigators interviewed dozens of friends, family members, and business associates of Glenn Davis. They pored over his bank records, phone records, looking for anything that stood out but no leads materialized. The police were digging for dirt, but Glenn Davis simply had none. And no one came forward to say they recognized the men on the video surveillance from the underground parking garage. An analysis of cell phone records from the area at the time of the murder also failed to provide any information. For the detectives on the case, It was extremely frustrating. The murder of Glenn Davis had gone cold. But then, finally, on November 1st, 2008, investigators received a lucky break. A small-time criminal picked up on an unrelated charge told the cops he had a story to tell them, and it involved the murder of Glenn Davis. 
Tyler Cawley, a roofer by trade, had been arrested in Toronto's East End and charged with robbing and threatening mentally disabled people. But while talking to the police, he said he could tell them about the baseball attack on Glenn Davis in December of 2005. He stated that a tall Russian contractor named Dmitry had offered him and a friend $150,000 to kill Glenn Davis. Tyler Cawley knew Dmitry as they had worked on some of the same home renovation contracts. Cawley admitted to agreeing to the murder for hire. He drove the getaway van while his cousin attacked Glenn Davis with a bat that was apparently sawed off and filled with dog food to give it extra weight. But the attack was interrupted when an employee saw what was happening and ran towards Glenn as he was being attacked. Collie and his cousin took off and only got paid a fraction of the agreed-upon price because Glenn Davis had survived. Collie also told the detectives that he knew who had eventually killed Glenn Davis. Dimitri had a Russian friend named Eugene who resembled one of the men in the video surveillance coming out of the underground parking garage at the time of the murder. For the homicide detectives working the case, they weren't sure what to believe of Collie's story. But the petty thief did seem to know a lot of details about the very private millionaire. Details he said Dimitri had provided to him for the hit. On a ride around the city, Collie showed the detectives where Glenn Davis lived, where he parked his car when he went to Leafs hockey games, and his North York office where Collie and his cousin had attacked him. But if a man named Dimitri had hired Collie to kill Glenn Davis, what was the Russian contractor's connection to the unassuming philanthropist? Collie said he had been told that a business partner of Glenn Davis was unhappy and wanted him killed, so he had hired Dimitri to find the men for the job. Collie didn't know the name of the so-called business partner, but he was sure he had worked on his house, and he knew where the man lived. Collie led the police to an address on Roselawn Avenue in Toronto's moneyed Forest Hill neighborhood. The house was registered to Rothshire Enterprises. The man that owned that company was now their number one suspect in the murder of Glenn Davis. And it turned out he had been right under their noses the whole time. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Three months later, in March 2009, after an intensive 21-month investigation, Toronto police arrested Marshall Ross. Glenn Davis's 37-year-old second cousin, godson, and favorite relative. He and three other men were charged with first-degree murder. The arrest was a stunning development in a case that had made headlines across the country. It was a high-profile murder mystery, and those who knew Glenn Davis didn't believe he had any enemies let alone someone so close to him. Police alleged Ross hired two men, Dimitri Kozarine and another man named Jesse Smith, whom he knew through his home renovation business. And they hired another man, Eugene Vorobiev, as their gun for hire. After the police received the critical lead from Tyler Cawley, they started to dig into Marshall Ross and his connection to Dmitry Kozarine. In their previous search of cell phone records in the area, they had missed numbers linked to Kozarine and Vorobiev. But they could now prove both men were in the vicinity of the parking garage at the time of the murder. And shortly after the investigation secretly began to focus on Marshall Ross. Mary Alice Davis, Glenn's widow, approached investigators with her own concerns about her godson. 
he still owed $2.7 million to Glenn's company and had not made any attempt to repay the loan after Glenn's murder. Yet, he seemed to be enjoying an extravagant lifestyle. In the year following Glenn's murder, Marshall Ross and his wife Eva had stayed close to Mary Alice to support her through her grieving. But Marshall was also spending a lot of money. He rented a villa in Tuscany for his family and shipped back expensive bottles of rare wine that he stored in his wine cellar in his nicely appointed home. He also took frequent trips to Mexico and Cuba regarding development projects, but nothing ever seemed to pan out. Something just wasn't adding up, according to Mary Alice. But little did she know, the police already had their sights on Marshall Ross. The detectives in charge of the investigation knew they needed to get their number one suspect on side so he didn't know he was being watched. Marshall Ross had the means to flee the country, so they didn't want to spook him. They re-interviewed him about the case, but also re-interviewed other relatives so nothing looked suspicious. Naturally, Marshall Ross had a solid alibi. He was at his cottage in Muskoka at the time of the murder. So the police played along. Then, the detectives in charge held a press conference offering a $50,000 reward for information regarding the murder of Glenn Davis and asked Marshall Ross to represent the family in front of the cameras. Of course, he was more than happy to help. But what Marshall Ross didn't know was while he was helping the police with their investigation, every word he spoke was being recorded. Each time the investigators spoke with Ross, they wore body pack recorders, and they had also wiretapped the cell phones and cars of Marshall Ross and his two Russian associates, Vorobyov and Kozarin. And to get the three men talking, investigators began planting false information with Marshall Ross, like saying they had a suspect in custody whose DNA matched some found at the 2005 baseball bat attack on Glenn Davis. They also asked him for a list of workers from his renovation jobs, something he seemed reluctant to provide, but discussed at length with his two accomplices. Let me put a video of both. Got Eugene walking up the ramp in from the parking garage. They knew he was in the parking garage. They think he's the guy. Jesse is the person of interest. They just want to talk to him because they think they know who the guy is. The beautiful part about it is there's absolutely no motive on it. There's no reason why we would have done it. There's no, there's no, it doesn't look like there's any reason. The police wiretaps ultimately led to many nervous conversations between the three suspects and gave investigators what they needed to make the arrests. Upon learning of the arrest of her godson, Mary Alice Davis, Glenn's widow, remarked, 
those poor children, referring to Marshall Ross's two young kids. She and Glenn had treated Marshall Ross like a son, and he had betrayed them. Now she could only think of his children. On November 3rd, 2010, the first of the four accused in the murder of Glenn Davis had his day in court. Jesse Smith pleaded guilty to the reduced offense of accessory after the fact for helping the man who shot Glenn Davis flee from the crime scene. Smith, a construction worker from Ajax, said he first heard about Glenn Davis when Kozirine told him that someone was willing to pay $100,000 to have him killed. A week before the murder, Smith met Eugene Vorobiov and Marshall Ross in a Home Depot parking lot. Ross said he wanted his uncle killed because he was giving away the family money to charity. Smith also said Marshall Ross was angry because he thought he should be controlling the family fortune since Glenn Davis was adopted. Smith confessed to driving the getaway car after the murder. He said he and Vorobiov drove to Port Perry, approximately 45 minutes northeast of Toronto, where Vorobiov threw the murder weapon into Lake Scugog. The next day, Smith fled to Cuba. Six months after the murder in November of 2007, Marshall Ross traveled to Cuba to scout land for investment with Glenn Davis's money and met with Jesse Smith. Smith testified that Ross assured him everyone was in the clear and told him that the hardest part of the entire situation was that he had to give a eulogy at his uncle's funeral. Jesse Smith was sentenced to five years in prison for his part in the murder of Glenn Davis. After his arrest, Marshall Ross continued to protest his innocence. His family supported him, and people began taking sides. Glenn's widow, Mary Alice, suddenly found herself isolated from former friends and family members who had supported her after Glenn's murder. Then, in October of 2011, a week before his trial was to begin, Marshall Ross pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, a rare occurrence in criminal trials, since a conviction would mean an automatic life sentence. Crown attorney Hank Goody read an 86-page agreed statement of facts describing how Ross plotted the murder of his benefactor not once, but twice, using associates he met in the renovation business. Between 2004 and 2007, Glenn Davis had loaned $2.7 million to Marshall Ross his godson, also his first cousin removed, to help Ross finance a home renovation business in Toronto. 
Glenn Davis did not interfere with Marshall Ross's company and even gave him a free office at N.M. Davis Corp.'s head office. Glenn trusted Marshall Ross implicitly, according to the statement read in court. In return, Ross lied repeatedly to Glenn Davis. He cooked up falsified spreadsheets and invented addresses of buildings in which he pretended to be investing in. It was also discovered that he had forged Glenn's signature on a mortgage application to purchase his North Toronto home in 2004. Marshall Ross was in a deep financial hole and was in constant fear of being discovered. So he decided his only way out was to have Glenn Davis killed. In 2005, Ross arranged the first attempt on Glenn Davis's life. A man attacked him outside his business near Bayview Avenue and York Mills Road with a baseball bat. He required over a hundred stitches and staples to close his wounds and surgery to implant a metal plate into his left elbow and forearm. Petty thief Tyler Cawley admitted to the police that he received $20,000 for that attack, a fraction of the agreed-upon price of $150,000 because Glenn Davis did not die. After the baseball bat attack, Ross continued to borrow heavily from Glenn. And Glenn, believing the baseball attack had been a random event, maintained his complete trust in Marshall Ross. But because the debts were growing with no hope of repayment, Marshall Ross decided Glenn Davis had to die. Ross went back to the Russian contractor, Kozirine, and asked him to recruit two more men, hired assassins who would finally get the job done. In May of 2007, Glenn Davis had just finished lunch at the Granite Brewery with a friend from the World Wildlife Fund, to which he was a generous contributor. He was walking to his car in the parking garage when a hitman shot him twice with a 9 millimeter pistol. In his last moments, Glenn Davis had begged for his life. He was 66 years old. Marshall Ross, who was at his cottage in Muskoka on the day of the murder, later delivered a heartfelt eulogy at Glenn Davis's funeral, wearing his godfather's trademark Tilly hat, and then placed Glenn's ashes in the grave at Mount Pleasant Cemetery. He and his wife continued to stay close with Glenn's grieving widow, Mary Alice. Now, four years after Glenn's murder, Mary Alice Davis was in court to hear her godson's surprise guilty plea. Prosecutor Hank Goody read her victim impact statement in which she described the anguish and despair she had felt since her husband's murder. What Marshall Ross had done was, quote, 
a disgusting betrayal. End quote. Before sentencing, Marshall Ross did not address the court, but his lawyer, James Lockyer, read a statement written by his client. Ross admitted that he was having financial difficulties and wrongly thought he might be in Glenn Davis's will. He also admitted resenting that his uncle Glenn, who was adopted, was giving away the family fortune to numerous charities. Quote, I cannot do anything to change the terrible thing that I have done. I have devastated the lives of all those near and dear to me. I deserve the sentence I am getting. End quote. Marshall Ross was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Two months later, the Russian hitmen hired to kill Glenn Davis went on trial. Marshall Ross did not testify at the trial of Dmitry Kozarine and Eugene Vorobyov. But the court heard that the three men met in the renovation business when they worked on a garage on Toronto's bridal path. The Crown alleged that Ross was bitter that Glenn Davis expected the loan to be repaid and enlisted Kozarine to line up someone to execute the man he called Uncle Glenn. The jury listened to the wiretap evidence the police had collected. They heard a series of calls in which Marshall Ross nervously tried to deflect police inquiries. The recordings also established Ross's familiarity with Dmitry Kozarine and Eugene Vorobyov. The trial lasted for eight weeks, and then, on Tuesday, December 20, 2011, Eugene Vorobyov, the man who fired two bullets into Glenn Davis as he begged for his life, was convicted of first-degree murder. The jury had rejected his testimony that he was not the actual shooter. Vorobyov was sentenced to life imprisonment. But in a surprise outcome, the same jury failed to reach a consensus on whether Dmitry Kozirine had arranged the murder of Glenn Davis on behalf of Marshall Ross. A retrial was ordered, and one year later, Kozirine was convicted of first-degree murder for his role as the middleman in the plot to kill Glenn Davis. He, too, was sentenced to life in prison. Both men eventually appealed their convictions and lost. Like his cousin Mary, who was kidnapped in 1969, Glenn Davis was betrayed by someone very close to him. Someone he had loved and supported. But for those who knew Glenn Davis, they did not want his violent and senseless murder to overshadow his legacy as one of the most committed conservationists Canada has ever known. He remains the single biggest individual donor to conservation groups in Canada. He donated more than $20 million over 40 years to various environmental causes, 
and his financial support led to the establishment of 1,000 new parks and added millions of hectares of protected land in Canada. Ten years after his senseless murder, his friends and many of the charities he supported celebrated his life and legacy with the creation of a new $10,000 award named in his honor. The Glenn Davis Conservation Leadership Prize is presented every year to a person who has demonstrated a personal passion and commitment to the conservation of Canadian spaces or species. For Mary Alice Davis, Glenn's widow, the murder of her husband by his godson was an unforgivable betrayal that not only took the love of her life, but also ended her relationship with the Davis family, a family already divided by money and greed. Marcia Davis Ross, whose own sister Mary had been kidnapped, refused to believe her son had engineered the murder of her cousin Glenn and cut off all ties to Mary Alice. At 83, Mary Alice lives alone in the house she and Glenn once shared. Marshall Ross, now 50, remains in a federal penitentiary, serving a life sentence. In 2020, he was charged with counsel to commit murder. According to court documents, he was trying to arrange the murders of four people from his prison cell. The names of his four intended victims have not been released to the public. Today, a civil lawsuit involving Glenn Davis's estate remains unresolved. N.M. Davis Corp., the Davis Family Investment and Holding Company, is still trying to collect on a $3.2 million judgment they won against Marshall Ross in 2012. N.M. Davis Corp. has received no payment and alleges that Ross fraudulently transferred his interests in the matrimonial home and two cottage properties to his ex-wife, Eva Wauer, under the guise of their divorce proceedings, in order to prevent Davis Corp from realizing on its judgment. Ross's ex-wife remains in their Sherwood Park home in Toronto, where she runs a daycare. In his will, Glenn Davis left a spousal trust for Mary Alice that will pass to a list of his hand-picked charities upon her death. In 1929, a young man from Ohio named Nelson Davis moved to Toronto and began buying up companies during the Great Depression. Before long, his brother Marshall had joined him and together they amassed a fortune. But their millions couldn't buy the one thing they valued, privacy. While they worked hard to keep their names and faces out of the media spotlight, their wealth 
still attracted greed, and danger came to them in disguise. The enemy was within, hidden amongst their loved ones. Lies, betrayals, jealousies, kidnapping, and finally murder. A family legacy. A family lost. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.